Recorded live. This is an interactive, interactive podcast designed for audience participation. Come talk, talk, text chat, or listen live at TalkShoe.com. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, or IAQ Radio. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is my co-host, Cliff Zlotnick, and our technical assistant, cyber jockey, Zach Zlotnick. We apologize for the technical delay in getting started here, and we would also like to welcome a new sponsor this week, Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at dryease.com. That's D-R-I-E-A-Z.com. And, of course, we'd also like to thank our first and continuing sponsor, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. For subscriptions and advertising information, you can go to ieconnections.com. Today's guests are Larry Janeski of Basement Solutions and David Matella of Kimberly Clark Filtration. We are live here every Friday at noon, and we do have the ability to email you a reminder about the show and give you a little bit of a preview of the upcoming show. If you would like to get those email reminders, simply send us an email at info at iaqtraining.com with authorized notification in the subject line. So just send us an email and we will send you a reminder. The show is live and it's obviously a lot more fun if we have some callers and people texting in, which is starting to come along nicely. To call in live, you do have to go to the talkshoe.com website, that's www.talkshoe.com, and sign up for your 10-digit PIN number. We suggest you use a phone number that is easy to remember. One of the ways you may want to remember this is to call your mother every week and use her phone number. Then, uh, once you get in, the show's PIN number is 1547, which is always on our show's web page as well. All this information is available um, at the web uh, talkshoe.com page. You can type in IAQ in the search box and you will find our indoor air quality uh, training and indoor air quality radio program. Or you can email us at uh, iaqtraining.com. That's info at iaqtraining.com. All right, so we've got all that out of the way. Now, let's move on to Mr. Cliff Zlotnick and the microband systems trivia question of the day. Also, we have a, a few previous questions that we have to go over. Cliff? Yeah, well, actually, what I'd like to do is congratulate Mark Brenner of Atlantis Waterproofing and Mold Control. He's the first microband trivia sensei. Uh, what happens is when you win uh, by answering the trivia question correctly three times, as Mark has done, you go into this next category. So what we're looking for people to do is be able to compete with Mark at the end of the year in what we're going to call the grand 
championship. We've also decided to give you some answers to some trivia questions that have been floating around out there for some time. We had one trivia question, which many of you might remember. It's a mold inspector found extensive fuzzy white stuff on a cinder block wall. When viewed under a microscope, it was a crystalline structure. An accredited AIHA lab determined the material not to be biological, but rather chemical. We were looking for the chemical nature of this. We had people that were close, uh, but we had no cigar. The correct answer to that question was calcium sulfate. Calcium sulfate was uh, the proper question. One of the interesting questions that Mark answered last week, it dealt with fungi. It was a fungi trivia question. Yes. It was which important stem decay fungus was used as a source of body paint by Native Americans in the Northwest. And actually, the answer to this is called Indian paint fungus. So you got that one correct. Technical name that we're not even going to to attempt to pronounce here. Correct. Absolutely, we'll, we'll, we'll be a, a, uh, <laughs> embarrassing ourselves uh, if we would try to do that. Uh, Mark also answered a question: which which insect is capable of uh, giving birth to its young live? And that was actually a Madagascar hissing cockroach. Uh, one of the questions that's still in play is a question that deals with radon. Radon is present in almost all rock, soil, and water in the United States. Radon is an inert radioactive gas, and it has a tendency to collect in basements, lakes, rivers. The most dangerous route of, of radon is by inhalation. What we'd like to know is what level of radon is safe inside of a building in the United States. That's our trivia question this week. We'll leave that one in play. I have another insect trivia question that I would like to put in play, and this is why don't spiders get caught in their own webs? Kind of an interesting answer to that one. That's a good one, Cliff. Okay, so those are our trivia questions, Joe. I guess now we can, we can move, on. move on to the next segment of the show, and we do have Larry Janeski, I believe, on the line. Larry, are you there? I am here. Uh, great to have you, Larry. Larry? Uh, Larry Janeski entered the construction field as a carpenter and builder and then diversified into providing basement waterproofing services to existing homes. Learning that there was much room for improvement, he set out to make those improvements, and he has since patented 23 products with more pending. I heard about Larry's book, Crawl Space Science, and I ordered it online for $14.95 from Amazon. It's a fascinating little book. It's loaded with pictures and helpful icons. It really makes you think about something that's generally out of sight and out of mind, and that's crawl spaces. Larry, welcome to our show this morning. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Larry, did you learn about problems with crawl spaces by fixing one in your own home? No, not in my own home. Uh, I live in Connecticut where uh, just a minority of homes have crawl spaces. Um, but... Um, in the process of basement waterproofing, we uh, had people that have water in their crawl spaces, and they would call us. And uh, so we were seeing these crawl spaces, which uh, there really wasn't a, you know, a, a solution that was being offered, you know, in the marketplace to uh, fix dirt crawl spaces. And what we were doing is looking at it from the leakage side. But um, when we started uh, exploring this a little further, that we realized, wow, there's a lot more to a dirt crawl space problem than just groundwater leakage. You know, Larry, this is Joe. I um, have taught certified mold remediator courses for years, and prior to that, I, I did a lot of other training and uh, environmental consulting. And 
I found actually that some people didn't even really understand what a crawl space is. And maybe if you could, you know, we have to keep in mind we're on the radio, we can't show pictures. Could you paint a picture of what a crawl space is under a home as opposed to maybe in a school or something like that? Well, um, a uh, here in the Northeast, you know, the basements are common, but um, in many areas of the country, um, the uh, for example, in the South, there's not a a frost line where you, the builder has to dig down. In Connecticut, it's 42 inches below the frost line, so to get down uh, to put the footings in, so he would just put a basement in and make that usable space. Well, um, in cases where you don't have to dig down below the frost line. Um, or in cases like here in Connecticut when, well, it was just an addition or it's, it's, a, it's a lake house, there's a high water table, they're thinking, and they don't want to dig so deep. And various reasons, they would just put a crawl space in. So it's a short foundation wall, could be uh, as low as one foot uh, high uh, uh, to, oh, there's crawl spaces that people call them crawl spaces and they're six or seven feet high. But the average is probably, oh, two and a half feet or so. And um, the foundation walls are that high and they build the, the wood flooring system uh, over that, the first floor, but they leave the floor dirt in most cases. And, um, and so you're looking at a, a space that you have to crawl on your hands and knees in. You're crawling on dirt and uh, the floor joists and, uh, are right, right at your back. I guess it's pretty good if you're a fisherman. I guess you can go down there and dig for worms all year round, not have any problems with that. Um, what do you do, Larry, when a, a crawl space had previous sewage leaks? I'm sure that you run into this. Do you take out the soil? Does it have to be removed? Do you do something to treat the soil? Have you ever heard of something called bioremediation, where they actually take enzymes or genetically engineered bacteria in order to try to remediate that? Well, we've that hasn't been our our sphere of uh, of work. Um, we would leave that sort of thing to uh, you know the, the guys that do uh, environmental cleanups and so forth. Okay. Perfect. We were looking at uh, groundwater leaks uh, as uh, you know something that we have to deal with, but found that there's a lot more to it than than just groundwater leaks. In fact, uh, crawl spaces that have uh, exposed earth and vents and no groundwater leaks can have terrible mold and rot problems. And so these these mold and rot problems are, I'm assuming, one of the things that was your inspiration in designing the system that you are uh, installing in these crawl spaces now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, um, when wood is uh, uh, gets wet, um, there's this uh, mechanism that God put on the planet called uh, mold and uh, and uh, fungus and so forth to um, deteriorate, uh, you know, rotted uh, plant life. And um, when we, you know, take a, a two by ten and put it in a floor system, uh, and it, it it stays at uh, in a, an environment that's 80 or 90 percent relative humidity. Well, you know that that mold mechanism is triggered, and the mold starts growing on the wood, and uh, rot uh, begins, and so forth. So we found many homes uh, with mold and rot, and and people don't go down in their crawl spaces very often. So they're suffering with you know whatever symptoms of living in a home with 
mold, uh, you know, that, that they suffer and not knowing that it was associated with what's going on right below their feet. And uh, to make matters worse, they run the duct system through the crawl space and you've got duct leakage, which is, you know, it, it's uh, your enemy in, a, in an open uh, dirt crawl space. Uh, so you're... Uh, pressurizing the crawl space with uh, supply duct leakage and, and forcing air upstairs. And with return duct leakage, you're sucking air in directly from the crawl space into the HVAC system. So whatever air quality that you have in the crawl space, you have upstairs as well, obviously diluted with other air in the house. But studies show that about 50% of the air you breathe on the first floor came through the crawl space. Wow. What are the biggest and most common misconceptions about crawl spaces, Larry? Well, the biggest one uh, is that, uh, well, th th there's two really big ones. The, the first one is that, you know, leaving earth exposed uh, in our homes is uh, an acceptable idea. Well, it's not an acceptable idea because the earth is, uh, you know, 100% relative humidity pretty much uh, uh, year-round, and we have water vapor coming up through uh, the earth into the building envelope. And so that, that's a bad idea, having exposed earth. And then we tried to solve the problem. Uh, somebody uh, back when, we can't exactly figure when it was or what their thinking was on this, but um, thought that, well, gee whiz, uh, we have a high relative humidity in the crawl space, so let's put vents in and around the crawl space and uh, there's codes building codes for many years and in most states there still is that require vents and dirt crawl spaces at the perimeter and the thinking was that air would you know soar from the outside which was supposed to be better air <laughs> but that's a whole nother issue that uh, what what's the quality of the air that we're venting with but that air would waft in the vents in the front of the house and pick up the moisture and somehow waft out of the vents in the back of the house and take the moisture away and everything would be okay that's what they call smart air right <laughs> yeah that's right and uh, so instead uh, what happens is that well first of all we need to understand how air flows in a house. Air flows in a house from bottom to top. Uh, because, Why is that? Well, the, the whole house as a structure acts as a chimney, and there's a, there's a, a suction effect. As warm air rises through the house um, in the summer and winter, um, air rises through the house and escapes out of uh, openings in the upper levels of the house, and that creates a... Uh, positive pressure at the upper levels of the house, but it creates a negative pressure at the lower levels of the house. In other words, as air escapes, we can't create a vacuum in the house. We need new air to come in to replace the air that left, and that new air comes in at the lower levels of the house, where through um, openings uh, around windows and doors and, and uh, various cracks in the building envelope, but of course through these giant holes that we put in the perimeter of our crawl space. So the air comes in all the crawl space vents, picks up the moisture, and goes up. Uh, there's a whole other uh, sinister thing that's going on in the summertime uh, relative to moisture with the venting, and that is that we need to understand psychrometrics and how when we cool warm, humid air, um, that the relative humidity goes up 2.2% for every one degree that we cool the air. So if we are venting our uh, crawl space in August and the temperature outside is uh, 85 degrees and the relative humidity outside is um, 
on that day, and we bring that air into a crawl space that's uh, 68 degrees, well, we're cooling the air by 17 degrees. Now, 17 times 2.2 percent is 36 or 37 percent. We're raising the relative humidity. We started out with 80 percent relative humidity. Now we're over 100. Well, we can't be over 100, so what happens is we get condensation all over the cool surfaces inside the crawl space. So we're actually adding moisture to a crawl space whenever the outdoor air temperature is greater than the indoor air temperature. Incredible. Now, the system that you are using to fix these problems, I have heard it called making that crawl space into a conditioned space within the uh, within the home. Right. Is that accurate? Is that the way you describe it as well? Yeah, uh, that that's right. Um, it can vary a bit from house to house, particularly if you have uh, hot air heating, uh, uh, hot air heat um, and ducts running in your crawl space compared to uh, you know a hot water heating system in a house that has no air conditioning and no ducts. But yes, you're, what we're doing is, um, if you have a vented dirt crawl space, you're, you're considering the crawl space as outdoor space, and what we do then is we uh, insulate the floor, the, the that's between the crawl space and the house because that's the floor is between the heated and unheated space. Yes. And um, so what we're doing uh, by closing all the vents and sealing off the earth um, now is we're coupling the um, the air uh, in the crawl space with the air upstairs, and we don't have to worry about insulating the floor in between. If we want to insulate, we can insulate the crawl space walls. Um, but duct leakage now is your friend because it's uh, helping to condition the uh, the crawl space. Yeah, I would think most people would be adverse to finishing their crawl space or putting a system in like this and then conditioning it because they would think that it actually costs them more money to either heat or cool that area. Right. And what's your opinion on that? Well, cooling is not an issue because the crawl space is, you know, is below grade um, and the earth is cool. The, the earth temperature in your area is the average outdoor temperature year-round. And, um, you know, generally uh, in summertime, uh, clearly the average air temperature is lower than your summertime air temperature. So your earth is cool, and we don't have to worry about air conditioning or crawl space and adding, uh, you know, BTUs or spending money on energy to air condition or crawl space. But um, to heat it, it doesn't really take a lot more energy because the heat, is uh, still in the building envelope. If you add heat to a crawl space, the heat rises, it warms the floor, therefore uh, upstairs, it therefore takes less energy to heat upstairs. Uh, so it really doesn't uh, add um, any uh, measurable amount to your heating bill. Let's, let's kind of describe this system for, for the viewers. We're talking about essentially building a almost like a, a swimming pool in this crawl space, you right. you line it with, I'm not sure what mill uh, vapor barrier you use. What what uh, typically we hear of people talking about six mill poly being used to line these types of areas. What what type of lining do you use? Well, what what clean space is the name of the product, and um, and what it is is a um, 
a seven-layer sandwich of high-density polyethylene, low-density polyethylene, and polyester cord reinforcement. And it has an antimicrobial uh, finish on uh, uh, molded into the plastic, uh, actually. But um, it's, it's between 16 and 20 mils thick because it's bumpy because of the, the uh, cord reinforcement inside. It depends where you mic it. But it's between 16 and 20 mils thick, and uh, uh, it's very, very durable. Um, you know, you can crawl in there after we're done and not have to worry about poking holes in it and so forth. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if you think of it like a pool liner um, that we're uh, installing in a crawl space and we wrap it up the walls, we wrap it up uh, piers, uh, concrete piers, of course. We don't uh, fasten it to anything metal or wood because we don't want that to rust or, or rot. And um, uh, when you look in there after we're done, it looks like you're inside of a swimming pool. An, an empty swimming pool. That's right. <laughs> empty is a, yeah, is a key word. <laughs> now, what, Larry, what about what? underneath this? plastic. What, what do we do to make sure that it doesn't collect moisture underneath this plastic? Well, th there's going to be moisture underneath the plastic. Uh, we know there's going to be moisture underneath this plastic, and we don't really you know, care about that. We, what we'll do is we'll uh, remove uh, all the organic material that we can you know, see, uh, you know, uh, cardboard and insulation and wood and so forth, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it, what we're concerned about is keeping from the inside surface of the liner inward dry so that we can keep all our organic material dry so we can keep uh, water from evaporating into the building envelope and causing uh, the other problems associated with that, which there are so many. Uh, uh, and uh, so we, it's, it's not, a, not a problem. The first time that you did this for someone, did they think you were crazy when you proposed this idea? Yeah, well, you know, vapor barriers have been used for a long time, and uh, even the building code recognizes that, you know, a tremendous amount of moisture comes from the uh, evaporation off the exposed earth. So the building code actually says that uh, even the, the, the building code that we point to and say, look how wrong that was, uh, it even acknowledges um, that if you lay a 6 mil polyethylene vapor barrier on the earth, now, it doesn't say how durable it has to be. It doesn't say if it has to go up the walls. It doesn't say if it has to be wrapped around piers or pipes or anything. But it just says if you put a 6 mil vapor barrier down, then you can cut the venting requirement down by 90%. And you only need one square foot of ventilation, uh, which is two vents, because one vent, uh, traditional 8 by 16 vent, is half a square foot of open area. But you would need uh, one square foot of ventilation for every 1,500 square feet of earth that's covered by a vapor barrier, whereas without a vapor barrier, they require one square foot of ventilation for every 150 square feet of dirt floor area that's exposed. So um, uh, when we you know, took a look at, well, let's take a look at how well these vapor barriers are doing, well, there's a lot of problems with just laying six male poly down and one is that it's not durable at all um, it's very easily torn and you know holes are poked in it and so forth you can't really fasten it to the wall because if you put fasteners in the uh, and somebody tugs on the the six mil poly uh, the fasteners will rip right through um, and uh, uh, it wasn't solving uh, the problem completely because uh, uh, crawl spaces are made out of 
uh, block walls uh, very commonly, and we call block walls God's gift to basement waterproofing contractors. <laughs> uh, they, you know, water and air pass through them so easily, unconditioned air, uh, water in the form of leakage or water vapor. So we have to take care of the walls as well. So, so what we did was we said let's let's put something that's going to last as long as the house because whenever you fix a problem with materials that aren't going to last as long as you want the house to last, you're building in a remodeling project. You're building in well we're going to have to do that over again one you know at some point. So we wanted to put a vapor barrier in that would last as long as the house. And uh, we wanted to take care of the walls relative to air leakage, relative to uh, water vapor and, and water leakage. And uh, we want it to be durable so nobody can damage it. And so, and we want it to look very good. I mean, this, the clean space is bright white. And uh, uh, when a homeowner ducks down in there after we're done, they, I think they, they, they went to heaven. You, know, you can almost hear the, ah, uh, you know. <laughs> the harp. Well, what about the uh, home inspector that comes by after you've done this when they get ready to sell the home? Any problems with those folks? Well, um, normally, uh, first of all, the first thing that they're thinking of is that they're thrilled. They don't have to crawl in another nasty <laughs> dirt crawl space. Uh, but then um, they get to thinking, and, and they, they know it's a good thing. I think most home inspectors are know that the building code has serious flaws and it has for many years relative to this uh, venting issue. And uh, they know that dirt crawl spaces, there's nothing good about them. Um, so uh, most of them uh, recognize that we've made a dramatic improvement in the house. Now, down south, they're so used to uh, having exposed uh, earth and uh, bare walls and so forth and um, they're so concerned about the termites down south. Well, then sometimes that that question will come up. Well, what about the termites? If the termites march up the wall, I'm not going to be able to see them behind the uh, clean space liner. And so what we do there is we leave the clean space down three inches from the top of the walls, the foundation walls, so that if termites were to uh, escape out of the top of the clean space, which is difficult because we use polyurethane sealant uh, at the top edge uh, on the wall. Uh, but if termites were to make some tunnels and get to the wood, they would be able to see them. Now, this, this whole objection is kind of ridiculous to begin with because block walls are hollow, and the termites could march up the inside of the block wall and eat the sill plate without the uh, pest control operator seeing the termites from 30 feet away with a flashlight anyway, so it doesn't prevent them from having to crawl around to do a proper inspection. So it really doesn't make any difference whatsoever. How, I'm curious, how many of these crawl spaces do you estimate that your group at least, and I understand you have a network of people using your system, how many crawl spaces have been done with your method? Uh, well, let's see. Um, uh, I would estimate uh, about uh, 40,000, uh, something like that. Uh, Over how many years now have you been doing this, Larry? Uh, it's 2006 now. We've been doing it uh, six years. Six years. Right. So 40,000 homes and another several million to go. Well, more than several. In fact, there's uh, we've kind of done some studies on this, and there's uh, we figure there's about 28 million dirt crawl spaces in the United States, and there's uh, uh, and really every one of them needs to be fixed because none of them are built right. 
and uh, they're building uh, several hundred thousand more for us to fix every year. So it's, uh, it's a big problem. I've got a couple of just a quick questions. Uh, first of all, is there a warranty or guarantee that comes with the method? Well, uh, we warrant to the homeowner that um, there won't be any holes or tears in the clean space for 25 years and that there won't be any groundwater seepage on top of it either um, for that time. So um, it's, a, it's an excellent warranty. Um, now, something that's going to have to be done to ensure that the relative humidity stays down is uh, dehumidification. <clears throat> See, there's really four parts to fixing a crawl space properly. One is uh, take care of the groundwater seepage problem. Number two is isolate the house from the earth. Number three is seal outside air leaks, keep the outside air out. And number four is dehumidification. Um, normally, it's best accomplished with a dehumidifier, but there's other ways to do it, such as uh, blow conditioned air from upstairs down into the crawl space to use the HVAC system to dry the crawl space. Um, and if you've uh, effectively uh, sealed the outside air leaks, um, that can work fairly well, especially if you're in an area like Denver where the outside air is you know, not very wet to begin with. Um, but if you're in Georgia, you may have, uh, that may not be a perfect situation. You may still need a dehumidifier no matter what you do. Is there a good return on investment? You know, if, if there were two homes exactly the same, one next to each other in, in the same neighborhood, and one had uh, your system installed in the basement, do you think it would be uh, a sales advantage to the seller? Absolutely. Um, in fact, uh, clean space, um, fixing your crawl space this way, uh, is one of those repairs that you're going to pay for whether you get it or not because it's going to cost you more in heating and air conditioning costs and you know potential mold remediation and uh, wood replacement. I mean, they're sistering joists in these crawl spaces all the time because they're rotting out. And we have pictures of joists where you could stick a, a yellow, you know, number two pencil right through the joist without breaking the point on it. I mean, really bad. Um, so, but even without the the rot repairs and mold remediation and whatever it does to your property value as a result, just in the energy cost, um, you're going to pay more each year to the tune of about 15 to 20%. Uh, it could be more in some homes. Uh, that It'll cost you more in your heating and air conditioning bills um, each month uh, by having a vented dirt crawl space. Now, uh, so, therefore, fixing your crawl space will pay for itself in, you know, if you do the math, you find, oh, it may be 12 or 15 years, sometimes longer than that. It depends. It's sometimes shorter than that, but um, clearly it's uh, an investment that, that pays for itself. Well, the, the key word is investment there, Larry. Now, the big question is how much is this investment? So are we talking on a square, you know, your typical, let's say, 1,500, 2,000 square foot crawl space, is that, you know, what what type of uh, ballpark number are people looking at to fix this problem and fix it properly? Well, we charge $3 a square foot, and that, that's just for the floor area, not, not including the walls, just the floor area. So, you know, if it was a, a 2,000 square foot crawl space, you're talking about $6,000 um, plus a sump system um, and battery backup pumping system is an option, um, and a dehumidification system, which, you know, we use uh, top-of-the-line uh, 
dehumidification equipment, uh, you know, and vent covers and so forth. So we, we price it out according to what we're doing for that particular home and how big the home is. So typically, you know, a, a, for a, a decent-sized house, you could be talking about uh, anywhere from seven to $9,000, um, it could be, um, to, to do the job right. Um, and um, and we're, we're going to do it right or we're not going to do it at all. And, uh, you know, the customer is going to be happy with the work that we've done for them. Um, it is a, an investment, but, you know, they'll start saving money right away. And uh, over a period of time, um, they will save more than that uh, if they live there long enough. Now, if they go to sell the house in a short order, well, they've recovered that in their property value. So, Larry, my wife would have a question if she's here, and, it, and that question is, can she store stuff in that area? <laughs> Does that give her more storage space? And I suppose it would if you can walk on it and so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we see uh, people with uh, these terrible crawl spaces, and oftentimes they have access that's not so bad. You know, it's uh, through the side of, of the foundation. It uh, could be through a hatch through the floor, or it could be off the garage to get into the crawl space, but they wouldn't dare think of putting anything down there in the, with the moisture and so forth. And, and these people have sheds in the backyard, sometimes two or three sheds. They're packed with stuff. The garage is packed with stuff. They can't pull the car in because they don't have storage. So after clean space is installed, no problem. Uh, you can put stuff down there. I certainly would recommend dehumidification. So in the, in the uh, summertime that we didn't have some air leakage and the relative humidity going up and things getting moldy. But if you had uh, proper dehumidification and uh, clean space, you're you're good to go, and you could store you could store cardboard down there, and you wouldn't have a problem. Larry, do you sell the supplies to homeowners or contractors that are not in your network, so they can kind of you know get the benefits of your knowledge and do this work themselves? Well, we don't sell the the supplies to homeowners, but we do sell it to our um, authorized uh, clean space installers, and it's not hard to become an installer. So if a, uh, a pest control uh, operator or a home inspector or a mold remediator uh, wanted to become an installer, all they got to do is give us a call. Uh, we're we're going to give them the proper training. We have training classes uh, every uh, six weeks, and uh, we're constantly bringing new people in and, sh and you know training them properly, so we know that everything's done right and uh, we have um, uh, sales and marketing tools so they can communicate you know what the problem is to the prospects and you know what what should be done and why and so forth and uh, so anybody can uh, take advantage of the opportunity it is a great one it's a big one and anybody who's a contractor or provides services that is in crawl spaces all the time knows how much of an opportunity that it is and something needs to be done so we can um, help them with that there's no fees there's no training fees or royalty fees or uh, franchise fees or anything like that it's just uh, come on board and and um, we'll show you how to do it that's well, right Larry we uh, started a little late so we ran a little bit over on your time here but before we go we always like to ask is there anything first of all that you would like to add that we didn't discuss and I know that Basements are a whole nother issue. We'd love to have you back to discuss sometime, but anything else that you can think of we didn't ask that you'd like to add? 
Well, um, I, uh, I, I've written actually two books on uh, crawl spaces. The second one's called Crawl Space Science. The first one is called Dirt Crawl Spaces, America's Housing Epidemic. And really, you know, that's what it is. It, it's the worst problem, worst, you know, housing defect that we have seen out there. I, I don't know of any other one that's more serious and more problematic. And I think that... Uh, you know, homeowners are going to be looking at uh, replacing their entire floor system uh, in most cases eventually. And sometimes it only takes 10 years and sometimes it takes 30 or 40. But that's what people are faced with. That's what we're faced with and with the housing stock in this country if we don't do something about this problem. So whether you're a homeowner or you're a contractor that wants to get involved in fixing them, it's, uh, it's an important thing for uh, an important service to provide. How can our listeners reach you, Larry? Well, uh, we have a website, uh, basementsystems.com, and uh, our 800 number is uh, 800-541-0487. Well, one more time, 800? Uh, let, let me give you another one. It's a little easier to remember, 800-640-1500. Right. 800-640-1500, for those of you out there. And they can also, at basementsystems.com, get uh, information on your books, Larry? Right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We hope to have you back and talk a little bit more about uh, full basements as opposed to the crawl spaces. And I'm sure that our listeners really appreciate the valuable information. When I you know, first saw the book, uh, I was just really impressed with it. And uh, again, I you know, congratulations on your business model. Uh, you deserve only the best. Well, thanks. And if anybody would like a book, just give us a call and we'll send you one for free. Well, then so. you can send me my $15 back. <laughs> you have to talk to Amazon about that one. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Larry. All right. Thanks, Clay. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Okay. That's very a valuable good. thing. A nice get a book like that or both books. Free book. Perfect. Absolutely. Why not? Between segments here, I'd like to quickly just remind our listeners that the IAQ radio show is now approved by the American Indoor Air Quality Council for certification renewal credits, or renewal credits, I think is the current terminology. And once again, we'd like to thank our sponsors for today's show, DryEase uh, at dry-ease.com and Indoor Environment Connections at ieconnections.com. Our second guest today is Dave Metella. Dave is with Kimberly Clark Filtration. Dave, do we have you on the line here? Yes, you do, Joe. Excellent. Dave, I hope I didn't butcher your last name there. We haven't had a chance to talk yet. No, you did a great job. All right, thank you. Cliff Zlotnick's going to do a little introduction for you here, Dave, if we could, or maybe, well, maybe I'll do that. Um, well, while he's getting your introduction together, i got a question for you. <laughs> and I knew Kimberly Clark knew all about paper towels, but... Uh, I, I didn't realize that the firm was in the filtration business. How long has the firm been in the filtration business? Well, we consider ourselves a global health and hygiene company. Wow. Uh, we've been in the filtration business um, probably since the mid-1990s. Uh, we recognized some trends that were happening in filtration, which allowed us to compete in that environment, and we started producing filter media, which is sold to all the manufacturers across the U.S. and abroad. All right, Dave. Well, Dave, I, I found your intro, so let's uh, let's do that. Dave is the market manager for with Kimberly Clark Filtration Products, a supplier of HVAC filter media, uh, and he's responsible for marketing and sales. 
He's been with Kimberly Clark for 11 years, working in consumer product development and non-wovens material and process development, an area in which he holds eight patents. Dave is a member of NAFA, the National Air Filtration Association, and he is currently serving as their marketing committee chair. And he is also what is called a Certified Air Filter Specialist, CAFS, which is a designation from NAFA. He has published more than 30 articles in industry trade publications and journals since 2003 and has delivered numerous presentations on topics including air filtration and green building practices. There we go, Dave. We got it. And, Thank you. Uh, welcome to the show once again. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to have you here, Dave. We um, this is the first we've done seven shows now. This is the first time we've really had a chance to talk about filtration in any detail, and it's really a, a terribly important issue with respect to indoor air quality. Can you help us explain to the listeners what role do air filters play in achieving good indoor air quality? Absolutely. I think when people think of indoor air quality, they think about temperature, they think about humidity, and they think about ventilation because those are the things that you can see and feel. You know when it's too hot, you know when it's too humid. We look at it from uh, from the perspective that, infil- that filtration is a very important feature of indoor air quality as well because the filter is removing the particles from the airstream. And oftentimes it's overlooked, but if you think about a house or a building, every ounce of air that's in that in that house or building is passing through that filter at some time or another. And these filters, you, you primarily deal with particulate filters, Dave, or do you also get into filters that uh, filter out other types of problems like uh, vapors or gases? Kimberly-Clark mostly deals with particulate filtration. Particulate filtration, very good. And the, the particulate filters that you primarily are dealing with are commercial buildings, or do you work in other types of buildings as well? Uh, both commercial and residential, as well as some uh, industrial process, manufacturing facilities. And I know most, many of our listeners will be familiar with this. If they took a course from Cliff or I, they'll be familiar. But maybe you could explain to our listeners what or who is MERV, M-E-R-V? MERV is the product of ASHRAE 52.2, which is a fractional efficiency filter test standard. Uh, what that means, if you want to simplify that, is MERV stands for Minimum Efficiency Reporting Value. Uh, during the ASHRAE 52.2 test, you, uh, the data set that's provided allows you to determine what the efficiency is at every particle size between 0.3 microns and 10 microns. And this is a big change from the way this was done previously. Am I, am I accurate is, there? Yes, it is a big change. Historically, filters were generally referred to as X percent efficient, you know, 20% efficient, 50% efficient, 95% efficient. But efficiency is only relative based on what you're filtering. Chicken wire, for example, is 100% efficient on chickens, but 0% efficient on flies. <laughs> and that's what the 52.2 standard tried to do. It tried to say, what is the efficiency at a given particle size level? And that's where MERV comes from. So essentially, it's a level playing field. It's, it's one standard by which every filter manufacturer can compare their products, correct? Correct, exactly. And it, it's being implemented in a lot of the 
uh, a lot of the standards and a lot of the recommendations, the best practices right now in terms of what the minimum filtration requirements are for various types of buildings. And generally speaking, what's important for the listeners to understand is that MERV is a, it's a scale. It's not linear, but generally higher is better. So the MERV scale goes from about 6 to 15 for standard HVAC products, 15 being the best and 6 being what I'd call an entry-level pleated product. And why would there be a problem with, well, gee, shouldn't we all just jump to the 15? Well, there's a lot of different considerations. Um, I think mostly you want to understand what you're filtering in your business or in, your, in the atmosphere that you're trying to, trying to control. Um, 15 may be overkill in some instances. Uh, it may provide great benefits in others. And I think it's part of understanding you know, each situation and, and what filters you need to provide. And I would assume that the type of system that you have also would play a role in determining what level of filtration you can Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Those sister those system requirements will determine what the airflow capability of the equipment is, what the pressure drop limitation of the equipment is, and that all needs to be factored into that filter selection as well. And that pressure drop information, if I'm if I'm correct, is that available through the MERV ratings as well, through the chart? It's not part of the MERV uh, the MERV value itself. It is indicated in the ASHRAE 52 test report. I see. So an end user not only can they get the fractional efficiency at a given particle size, they can also get the initial resistance of that filter and then understand what the energy implications of that filter on their system are going to be. Well, what are the issues that you see right now in industry with filter installation? You know, what are some of the biggest problems uh, that, that you see out there? You know, I assume you go out to buildings or at least to building owners and discuss these uh, you know, filtration issues with them. What, what can you tell us? That's a, that's a great question, and yes, we do have a lot of dialogue with the end users out there, the folks that are using the filters. One of the biggest issues right now is what's, uh, what's called bypass, and it's when, you, when a filter is placed in a system uh, or in its framing unit, but it does not have a good seal. And air is like a fluid. It's, it's like trying to hold water in your hand. It'll go, water will go around your fingers and, and, and go exactly you know, where it wants to go. Air is the same way. If there's any bypass or, or way for that air to get around that filter with less resistance, it'll take it. So it's very important to make sure you have a good filter seal, either via some sort of gasket or even duct tape is a great solution to that. You know, tape that filter to the frame so it stays in its place and that no air gets through. Because you can take a filter you know, that is a very high efficiency filter and a minimum amount of bypass can take that filter down to a very low level very quickly. So in a lot of instances when people install filters, they're not really getting what they've paid for. That's a very important point to just be sure it's fitted, fitted in the frame properly and that it's attached. Absolutely. Point. Got a question. Can you tell me uh, an example or maybe perhaps more than one with your history with the company where filtration has improved indoor air quality in a building or, or solved the problem? I think, uh, yeah, there are a lot of examples. Um, one of the things that NAFA does, the National Air Filtration Association, is they publish a Clean Air Award every year. Now, this is an award that is, that is, that is for end-use facilities, so office buildings mainly, where they're nominated by the distributors and or the manufacturers that are serving those buildings. And what the nomination is for, people have, who have gone above and beyond the air filtration requirements. So folks that have generated an, a filtration upgrade and hence an IAQ upgrade in their building. 
And there's been documented performance within some of those clean air awards about productivity improvements, about energy savings, um, about general you know, cleanliness and well-being improvements as well. So those are, those are some of the things that NAFA brings to the party. Um, the USGBC, the U.S. Green Building Council, has a lot of information on their website which relate to green building philosophies and how those impact productivity and employee health. Now those, aren't, those are directly related to filtration as well as all of the other green building principles, uh, but it constitutes filtration as a part of those. I, I think we all realize that filters need to be changed. Absolutely. How often do we change these filters? This is one of the questions that comes up periodically in uh, courses that we teach. How do we know when to change the filters? But the easy answer is that it depends. <laughs> part of it depends on your environment. Part of it depends on what filter you've chosen. Um, most of the time, if you're using a pleated air filter, which is going to be a MERV 6 to a MERV 11, the recommended change out time would be approximately three months. About so on a quarterly basis. And these pleated that you mentioned, just so I can make give a, a little visual for our listeners, it's sort of like a series of V's almost, where you have, instead of one straight filter medium, you have like a, a V type of, is that what you're referring to when you say pleated? That's exactly what I'm referring to. Pleated just like a, uh, a skirt or a, a Venetian blind would be pleated. Why would a filter manufacturer make a pleated filter? What's the advantage of doing that? Is it stronger? The, the advantage to pleating, it really came about in the uh, kind of late 70s and 80s. Pleated filters started to come in the marketplace. And why they were designed is because there was a recognition that the air filter could do more than protect equipment, that it could actually clean the airstream. So by pleating the filter, manufacturers were able to put more filter media within the same frame area. And what that enabled to them to do is get higher filtration efficiencies, but keep the pressure drop low so it didn't have a negative impact on the equipment. You know, I think that we'll come back to the change out in just a moment, but you hit on a subject that I think is important for listeners to recognize. Most filters that were put into your system Fiber 15, 20 years ago, of those types, yeah. they weren't designed to clean the air, were they? They were primarily designed to protect the equipment. Absolutely. If you look at the origins of air filters, in the 1930s, HVAC filters were created for forced air heating systems. And their function was to protect the heating elements from dust accumulation and actually reduce the risk of fire. What happened then in the 40s and 50s, air conditioning came uh, into the mainstream and folks realized that they could use air filters to protect the cooling coils and keep the dust off the coils and then prevent fouling. So in the, in the origins of air filters, there was two reasons why they, were, why they were looked at from an equipment protection standpoint. And then again, as we moved on into the 80s and 90s, we had larger concerns about indoor air quality. Filters began to be used to improve the cleanliness of the airstreams rather than just protect the equipment. Uh, again, pleated filters began to penetrate the market that's when MERV was born uh, in terms of a test standard. And it, it, if you move again forward now into the 2000s, we have a whole different initiative that's taken place. We have September 11th, which occurred in 2001, obviously, which has brought the focus to filtration as a protection mechanism against bioterrorism. Energy concerns have brought the focus on filter pressure drop as one of the key selection criteria for filters and how do folks conserve energy. And green building initiatives have begun to recognize the impact of high-efficiency filtration 
and airstream cleanliness on indoor air quality, productivity, and sustainable building design. Now, I had sort of cut into your answer on how often the filter should be replaced. I, I We started out with every three months for your typical pleated filter. Was there anything you wanted to add to that? Uh, for higher-end filters, generally six to 12 months. Again, it's going to depend on the application and what you're filtering and what the historic life has been of that filter. Most times, um, a safe bet is to go back to that manufacturer and tell them the application that you're putting the filter in for, and they can give you a pretty good recommendation. Does the, uh, does the performance of the filter decline over this three-month period or, or, or you know, over its life expectancy? It should increase over time. As filters build a dust cake, that dust actually helps filter the filter. I think that's another important point that you know, the listeners would, would appreciate as well. That's, it's a very important point. I got a phone call the other day from a lady who recently upgraded from a uh, fiberglass panel filter to a plate. And she called me and she said, I'm shopping in, the, in this retail store, and you know, I, I have to buy six, seven of these at a time. And over the last six months, I spent $150 on just the standard residential pleated air filter. And I proceeded to ask her, how come? And she said, because five days after I put it in, it gets dirty. Uh, okay. So the key is that a dirty filter is a good filter, and a dirty filter means that filter's working. But we don't want it too dirty to the point where we're getting that bypass or there's it's disformed. Or, Correct. You know, Correct. Okay. So you want to have a... A schedule for changing it out. You want Correct. that schedule to be one that is not doing it too often, but also not waiting too long. And you've got to find that happy medium. How did someone make the decision? You know, when I buy my furnace, it doesn't necessarily say, and this whether it's commercial or residential, it doesn't say, does it, on the side that you should use a certain filter? No, it doesn't. The best the best thing to do is ask your contractor when he's when he's putting that in, or if you have a knowledge about air filters, tell them that you want a certain you know want you want high level air filtration, and that'll do two things. I think it'll help them select a system you know with you that is suitable for what you want to filter, and it'll allow them um, it'll give it'll prevent them from basically installing a low end fiberglass panel filter to begin with. Most of the uh, residential contractors now, if you're doing a replacement system, they offer um, more advanced filtering options than the standard 1-inch filter going into 2-inch and 4-inch, uh, even up to 6-inch depths in some cases. Well, uh, could you compare, uh, and I know this is you know, it's kind of apples and oranges, and if it is uh, and you don't want to go there, uh, I'll certainly appreciate that. What about uh, electrostatic-type filters? You know, where it's some sort of special media that it claims to be electrostatic. I'm not sure whether they are or they're not. Could you comment on that? Yeah, I can. There's, there are several different kinds. Um, there are called electrostatic precipitators, which are high-end, which are generally plug-in modules. Now, I'm not sure if that's what you're referring to. The other, the other types are with what we refer to as electrostatic filtration media. That's right. And, and that media is designed... Uh, there's an electrostatic charge placed on that filter media so that it, the filtration efficiency increases without a pressure drop sacrifice. Does your company, uh, do you have a product in that market? Yes, we do. Okay. Well, what is new in air filtration? We've talked about all of these things. It sounds like a lot of what we talked about is new, but what, what maybe should we look at as coming around the corner? 
I think there's a couple things to look out for. I think what we see on the retail store shelves is folks being continually aware of the importance of filtration, and you see that by the number of pleated filters that are on the store shelves now. So I think that's a, a very significant trend in the marketplace, and homeowners are becoming aware of the benefits. On the commercial side, we see a couple things happening. Um, we see higher-end filtration being implemented also as a result of some of the standards and minimum efficiency documents that are out there in the industry right now, one of them being the LEED certification documents through the USGBC. They have uh, minimum efficiency. Could you expand on that a little bit? Sure. The LEED program, which stands for Leadership and Environmental Energy Design, has, operates on a point schedule. So you can become LEED certified through the U.S. Green Building Council uh, if you meet a certain number of points in terms of environmental, the environmental sustainability of your program, or of your building, rather. Um, the points that are associated with filtration specifically call out a MERV-8 during construction and a MERV-13 during occupancy. Hmm. Now, that MERV-13 is generally higher than most commercial buildings have right now. So I think we'll see that trend continue toward higher filtration in commercial buildings. What about new media or medium? I'm not sure if I'm using the right word. Filter media, the what it's made of, the stuff it's made from. The Dave, stuff it's made from. Is what I read, read <laughs> <your mind show. laughs> yeah. Are we finding uh, innovations in that area as well? What's what was the typical, you know, white pleated filter made of in the past, and will it always be the same? And is that changing? Uh, it's, it's continuously changing, and that's a, that's a great question. Uh, historically, there was a lot of fiberglass used. Um, now you're seeing much more synthetic-based products, polypropylene, polyethylene, polyester-type medias. Uh, you're seeing technology developments, uh, Kimberly-Clark included, which, which enable higher efficiency at lower pressure drops, which is a holy grail for filtration. We want to filter as much as we can with the lowest energy restriction. Are your con uh, customers concerned about antimicrobial treatment of the filter? Is that a, a selling point? I haven't seen that to be too big a selling point with the filter itself. Um, that may be primarily because Kimberly-Clark produces a hydrophobic material. So our product does not absorb moisture, um, which moisture is one of the one of the things that's required to grow, you know, mold or microbes. You need a food source, which is the dirt on the filter. You need moisture, and then you need the microbes themselves, which are present in the airstream. So if we take away one of those factors, then we don't have the ability to do that. Could you elaborate a little bit more on this bioterrorism uh, point that you had made earlier? Sure. In uh, 2001, obviously, we are, we're all familiar with 9-11. Right. Uh, that's really what, what kicked everything off. What happened as a response to that is there was a presidential ad hoc committee formed, and it was formed in conjunction with ASHRAE, and they, they started looking at what role do filters have in protecting building occupants in the event of, in, in the event of bioterrorism. Um, I'd re like to recommend a viewing that's on the ASHRAE website, ashrae.org. It's a satellite broadcast that's entitled Homeland Security for Buildings, and it was recorded in April of 2004. And it, it goes through the role of filtration in building security for a post-9-11 world. And what, it, what has happened is that building owners and building uh, designers recognize now that if folks are in a building and there's a bioterrorism threat outside, by being inside the building and taking certain precautions, you can protect those people inside. 
and they do that by changing the ventilation system if an event occurs, by changing the filtration, and by you know basically going from an outdoor air or indoor air mix to just recirculating the indoor air. Or if there's an event in that building, you can isolate different floors. So filters have basically come, become the first line of defense for a bioterrorism threat if you're inside a building. We are running a little behind on time, but uh, be, before we before we leave, we always like to again ask if there's anything you know that we missed that maybe you'd like to add. I'd like to just uh, do a, a quick summation. One of one of my recommendations, and it's a very simple one for the folks out there listening. Um, my philosophy is that any upgrade is a good upgrade. So whether you're upgrading from a fiberglass panel to a pleated filter or a MERV-7 to a MERV-8 or a MERV-8 to a MERV-11, you know, any step you can take to improve your, improve your filtration is a step in the positive direction. And that's what I'd leave, like to leave folks with. Very good, Dave. If people wanted to learn more about air filters and air filtration in general, where might they go for more information? I'd, rec I'd recommend two sources. One is the Kimberly-Clark filtration website which is www.kcfiltration.com. And the other is the National Air Filtration Association website, which is www.nafahq.org. Nafahq.org. All right. We will also get a link up on the IAQ training webpage. If we don't already have one to NAF, I think we may, but uh, I know they've done... Some really good work in this area. <clears throat> oh, they're they're a great organization, really recognized as uh, as a training and education organization for filtration. Well, Dave, thank you very much, and uh, we we really appreciate having you on the show here today, and uh, we uh, look forward to maybe talking to you again down the road when we discuss filters one more time. Well, actually, David, another opportunity, I think, to talk to somebody at Kimberly-Clark might be uh, personal protective equipment. I know that your company has a position in uh, protective suits and, and so on and so forth, and uh, we'd probably like to talk to them uh, about you know, your products in that field as well. Okay. We can definitely uh, pass your contact information to those folks and get the ball rolling. Thank you very much. All right. Well, thank, thank you, gentlemen. You Take care. It's been a pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for today. Um, IAQ Radio has uh, completed our show number seven. I, we will be back again here next Friday at noon. We would like to once again thank our newest sponsor, Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dry-ease.com. And, of course, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, available at ieconnections.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next week. We won't see you, but we'll talk to you. Take care. Bye now.